This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to our third Thursday's webinar. Uh, I am Dr. Brian Fisk. I'm Senior Vice President of Research Programs at the Michael J. Fox Foundation, and I'm going to be your moderator today. So is Parkinson's disease inherited? So really, until the late 1990s, if you asked that question, uh, many scientists and doctors would have actually said no. Uh, but in 1997, scientists reported some of the first gene mutations in a number of Italian and Greek families with Parkinson's disease. And after this point, this really led to a massive effort among researchers to find more of these genetic changes that explain, could explain Parkinson's disease around the world. And that information is now a key driver of not really only our understanding of Parkinson's disease, but is actually the basis of some of probably what are some of the most promising new treatments in development for, for Parkinson's today. So today, we're going to be talking about Parkinson's genetics. So I'm going to start here first with a little bit of primer, because I think it's important for all of us to kind of get oriented again uh, about what we're, what we're going to do. So I'll talk a little bit about what is a gene mutation in a moment. We're going to talk a little bit about what the risk of Parkinson's actually is when you carry one of these gene mutations. Uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about, and you actually hear from a few individuals on our panel who I'll introduce in a moment, uh, hear a little bit about what it means to get tested for some of these genetic changes linked to Parkinson's disease. Uh, and then importantly, we're at the end, we're going to talk really about what I think is most exciting here is how these, how this genetic information is actually leading to new therapy development for Parkinson's disease. Uh, and finally, we're going to wrap up. We're going to talk a little bit about what's sort of the future of Parkinson's disease genetics and some of the ways that even you can get involved as well. Uh, let me introduce our panelists. I'm thrilled to uh, be sitting here or virtually with uh, a number of really, uh, you know, great people. Uh, we'll start over there on the left, uh, and I'd like to introduce Ofer Nemirovsky. Uh, uh, Ofer is a senior advisor, actually, at an investment firm in Boston. But importantly for me and for, for others at the Michael J. Fox Foundation, he's actually a member of our board of directors. Uh, Ofer carries an, actually a mutation in a particular gene called GBA. Uh, and is going to uh, help us talk a little bit today about uh, the impact that has had on his life as, as someone with Parkinson's disease. Thanks for joining us, Ofer. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Next, we have Rini Winter-Evans. Uh, Rini lives in Indiana. Uh, she's actually a social worker and, and timely for, for 2020. She's actually a COVID-19 contact tracer. Uh, Rini has an interesting story where she learned about her um, sort of link to Parkinson's disease through a particular mutation in a gene called LRK2. We'll again talk a little bit more about her journey in, in, later on in the presentation today. Um, um, but uh, she's also a amb research ambassador for the foundation. She participates in a lot of research studies, and so she can talk a little bit more about that as well. Thanks for joining us today and sharing your story, Rini. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Uh, and finally, I'm thrilled to also have Dr. Ignacio Mata, or Nacho as he likes to go by among his colleagues. 
Uh, Nacho is a geneticist at the Cleveland Clinic and actually leads a really important um, effort called the Latin American Research Consortium on the genetics of Parkinson's disease. And he's going to actually be helping me talk through some of the complex aspects of genetics and, and sort of the genetics of Parkinson's disease. Thanks for uh, joining us today, Nacho. Thank you, Brian. Very excited to be here. All right, so let's dive right in. So I think before we can really talk about the genetics of Parkinson's, it's important that we sort of, you know, get everybody oriented and sort of what do we mean by genetics and genes and sort of this, this whole concept. And so some of you who maybe have joined past um, webinars uh, have a little bit of knowledge of genetics, but there may be a few of you who've joined for the first time today or maybe haven't taken a biology class in a number of years. So let's, let's start with a few basics right here. And uh, when we talk about genetics, we're talking about genes. Genes. Uh, and ultimately, really, we're talking about DNA. Now, you've probably heard those, those letters before. DNA, DNA is really the chemical basis of heredity for life on Earth. And you can kind of think of it as the master cookbook that lives deep within the cells of our body. Uh, actually, each of us carries a mixture of DNA uh, inherited from our parents uh, and our parents who inherited their DNA from their parents and so on and so forth, are really all the way back to the beginnings of DNA-based life on Earth. Now, within those stretches of DNA are things we call genes. And you can think of these genes, if DNA is sort of a cookbook, think of genes as really the recipes within the cookbook. And each gene provides the instructions that tell a cell in our body how to make a particular type of protein. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about why proteins matter uh, later in the presentation today, but proteins really are the real labor force in our cells. Uh, they are the enzymes that break down our food, make energy to keep ourselves working. They are the structures and sort of little engines that maintain the shape of our cells and help move, you know, cellular machinery around to where they need to be. Uh, they're the molecular telephone operators that communicate information within and between cells of the body. So they kind of do everything, really. Um, now, our cells read different genetic recipes within the DNA cookbook. Uh, therefore, making specific proteins. Um, this, in turn, gives each cell their particular role. So some cells are heart cells, muscle cells, brain cells, for example. Now, in humans, believe it or not, we are about 99.9% .9 genetically identical to each other, meaning that most of the proteins we make in our bodies, the most of the recipes our cells read, are, are, are the same. But it's that 0.1% difference that is really enough to create the whole wide variety of traits and differences that make each of us so unique. Now, when it comes to disease, of course, sometimes those differences we see in the genes and the recipes, again, for making proteins, uh, we like to call them variants, gene variants, or sometimes we might call them mutations. Um, these changes can actually create changes in the protein recipe itself, and that can alter how our cells function, and in some cases, depending on how severe that, that change is, cause or increase risks for diseases like Parkinson's disease. Now, for Parkinson's, we've actually identified a fair number of genetic changes that we think are linked to either leading, sort of causing Parkinson's in some cases, or at least increasing the risk for Parkinson's in others. And so we're going to be talking about that more uh, here in a moment. So let's actually dive into that. And for this, I'm actually going to uh, have our panelist, Dr. Mata actually help us walk through this. Uh, Nacho, so you and I have talked about this before, about kind of how complex the genetics of Parkinson's can be, and especially when trying to explain it to the community, the Parkinson's community. And one of the big questions I think we often get is, you know, kind of how genetic is Parkinson's disease? You know, for example, we know there are families that have this sort of clear evidence of a genetic cause, but then there's also genetic changes that may by themselves not contribute 
a whole lot of push towards disease, but maybe an aggregate can increase risk. So this gets really complicated, I think, for a lot of people. And so could you just walk us through a little bit more specifically, you know, what do we mean when we talk about how genetic Parkinson's disease and, and really, you know, really what, what does that mean? Right. Well, I think as a as a geneticist, we always think about genetic diseases as something that is always uh, inherited, right, from parents to their kids and their kids to their own kids. So I, I think uh, in 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 that such a term, uh, you know, Parkinson's disease would not be considered really a genetic disease per se, because there there's very few uh, cases where there's actually a genetic variant that you introduce very well that actually causes the disease. And, you know, if you inherit it, you will develop the disease 100% of the times. Uh, in most cases, uh, everything really is genetic. Genetic is really what defines us. It tells us, you know, what your color your hair is or your color are your eyes and some, some even like behavioral traits. So obviously genetics plays a very important role on, on any disease risk. And in Parkinson's disease, there's no uh, much different. And being uh, such a complex disease, uh, in the brain being so complicated, I think, um, you know, it, it, it shows you how many genes are involved and how, you know, again, how complex this, this disease is from a biology standpoint and how many different players. And that's only the genetic part, but there's also an environmental part, right? So there's a, a huge combination of things that really have to happen in most cases for somebody to develop the disease. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. And you know, so I think one of the you know ways we like to think about it, is, you know, the slide sort of prevents or provides a little bit of that sort of concept is this sort of range of of genetics again. And so we can think about you know those genes that you know are pretty rare, but you know have you know carry a high risk if you have those particular changes versus you know those that are sort of lower risk and and you know uh, but maybe an aggregate and, and more frequent in, the, in in people but maybe an aggregate can increase your risk and could you talk a little bit more about that concept again because i think again that's such a powerful um, thing when we think about um you know parkinson's disease genetics right so exactly so i think we need to differentiate those two things that i was trying to explain before you know the ones that will be associated to like familial forms which is you know uh, very few and maybe even like less than five percent of the of the patients are caused by one of these rare variants right uh so just to explain it maybe in lay terms i i, I always like to think about the genome as like all these different buttons that the, a plain cockpit has, right? So if you run into, if you walk into a cockpit, you see all these buttons. So uh, our cells are kind of like that. It has all these different uh, uh, genes that need to be turned on and turned off. And um, really, there the, the are kind of like two types of buttons. So there's buttons that are completely uh, necessary for the plane to to uh, function well, right? So for example, you can think about the button uh, that turns on and off the engines. And if something goes wrong with that button, you know, the plane won't fly, or if it's flying, it might stop flying, which is, you know, is a, is a, it has a big effect. That's what we usually call in genetics, ha having a big effect or a huge impact on, in this case, uh, a, a disease uh, risk or, uh, uh, yeah, a, a disease risk. But there are other variants uh, or other buttons on the plane where if something goes wrong, you know, it may might get uncomfortable, but it's not it's not enough to to become a problem, right? So you can think of, for example, the AC going off, and we I think we all have been on a plane where the AC wasn't working or the heat was too hot, and I mean it makes it uncomfortable, but 
you know, in terms of genetics, those variants don't really cause the disease per se. But if you start accumulating some of those, imagine that, you know, the AC is not working, but then they ran out of water and you're stuck in a flight from, I don't know, New York to Sydney. So it's 13, 14 hours. Now it becomes a problem, right? So now people are dehydrating. Uh, so so the, I, I like to think about those sort of things um, as a different event that can have, you know, potentially uh, some very low effect that combined, you know, can reach a, a much larger effect. Uh, so so you, in this figure, I think we can see the same thing. So in the, in, the, in the bottom, you know, from left to right, we see how common these variants, these genetic changes are in the population. And when we said common, it could be, you know, more than 10% in the normal population. So we all carry some of these variants. And on the on the left, we have things that are really rare, so usually less than five or one percent uh, in the normal uh, in the healthy population. And then, and the, on the left, we have the PD risk. So being on the uh, being on the bottom, very low risk, and on the top, really high risk. So we kind of have three groups of, of of variants, and you can see that some of the genes repeat themselves. So you see the LRK2, which we're going to talk about later. Uh, this gene, you know, shows up in the two in two categories, and that means that a different variants in the same gene can also have different effects. So in in here we see that you know cyanuclein, which is a gene that I think everybody's familiar with, the SNCL gene that you can see in here. So variants in that gene are very rare in the normal population, but the effect is quite big. In some cases, you know, it's almost guaranteed that if you inherit this variant, you will develop the disease. Then in the middle we have variants that are you know, they're not that rare. So, you know, 5% of us carry one of these variants. But if you carry, you can still uh, not develop the disease. So I think it's very important to, to keep that in mind. And there are uh, papers where they show people in the 80s and 90s that are carriers of LER2 who don't develop the disease. So there, there are ways. And we still don't understand how or why some people will develop it or not. And again, I I think is the combination of maybe that variant with all the variants and then also some environmental triggers, which could be, you know, uh, pesticides or living uh, a very uh, unhealthy lifestyle. So all those things, they all accumulate. And then at the end, we have the low risk. So you were mentioning there's about 90, at least 90 uh, of these variants that have very little effect. So if you carry one or two or three, you know, you probably won't develop the disease or won't be the cause of your disease. But when you start accumulating, and these are things that are common in the population, so it's very possible that we all carry two, three, four of this. So the more you carry, and then also with the environment uh, triggers, as I mentioned, then that's how you end up uh, developing the disease. Uh, I hope that makes it a little bit more clear. No, I think that's, that's, that's great, and thanks for walking us through that. And yeah, I, I'm just sort of monitoring some of the questions that are coming through already. And, and as a reminder to folks, if you have a question, feel free to I think the box is sort of center of your screen. Feel free to submit a question. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing that you mentioned that I think is, is important is that, you know, obviously carrying some of these genetic changes doesn't necessarily always mean you're going to get Parkinson's. And there are probably a lot of reasons for that. And, and you alluded to some of them. You know, even some of the sort of, quote, unquote, more higher risk genes don't always necessarily guarantee that you're going to get Parkinson's. And I think this is an interesting, we can talk about this maybe in the, you know, later on when we talk about the future of genetics, but that there probably are a lot of factors, including other genes that 
-hmm. in combination might actually protect you from Parkinson's, even if you carry some of these, you know, some of these genetic changes that are normally linked to, to having disease. So maybe we can talk about that more near the end of the of the call today. But I think that's a, another important point that, that you that you raised. All right, so let's move on for time. So I want to. So now that we kind of have a, a grounding, at least in sort of the genetic basis of Parkinson's as it exists today, let's let's talk a little bit more, you know, with people who actually have gone through this journey of understanding their their the genetics uh, linked to Parkinson's and and sort of have gone through genetic testing. So so before we kind of uh, uh, go to our uh, panelists, maybe just a couple of quick points here. Um, you know, there, when you think about getting genetic testing, there are a lot of ways to think about this. And I think one of the most important things first is to ask yourself, well, why, why do you want to get genetic testing? Um, not everybody necessarily wants to, to go through this journey. Uh, it's important, I think, when you, when you think about these kinds of uh, uh, decisions to obviously talk to your doctor. Uh, it's good to talk to a genetic counselor, um, you know, uh, talk to your family members, make sure you understand, again, the, the reasons for why you want to get genetic testing. But, you know, once you do make that decision, there are different ways that you can you can go about getting genetic testing. You can obviously go directly through your doctor and, and actually have a genetic test sort of ordered as if you would, as you would any other medical test. Um, but there are also other ways you can um, both contribute your, your genetic information and, and, and doing so learn more about your genetics as well. And uh, there are a number of um, different research studies out there. You can find some of these types of studies in, uh, you know, either through your local universities or uh, we have a Fox Trial Finder effort. Uh, we also have actually a study that the Fox Foundation is involved in called Fox Insight that uh, offers genetic testing as well. Uh, and you can go to direct to consumer companies such as 23andMe and, and get tested for, for at least some of the uh, Parkinson's linked gene mutations too. And so there are a lot of different ways you can get involved. Um, not all of these um, options necessarily require you to actually know your genetics or learn your genetic status. So if all you're interested in is just contributing your DNA to a genetic study, uh, there are many studies out there, including studies led by, uh, uh, by Nacho and his colleagues, where all you need to do is supply a blood test and, and, and they'll do the genetics. And if you don't want to know your gene status, you don't have to learn it, but at least you're contributing also to, to our understanding of Parkinson's. So, so I'd like to stop here, and I'd actually like to hear from two of our panelists uh, who have actually gone through this journey of getting genetically tested and learn a little bit more about sort of the decisions they made and kind of how it impacted their sort of, you know, uh, thoughts about uh, Parkinson's disease. So, Oprah, I thought I actually would start with you uh, and have you maybe talk, tell us a little bit about your story, how you sort of made the decision to get genetically tested and kind of what, what's that meant for you? Right. Well, in my case, it was an easy decision because my wife was pregnant with our first child uh, 22 years ago, and she just thought it would be a good idea, and I agreed for both of us to get genetically tested and um, just to see what you know, was potentially in store for our kid. And uh, we found out that I had the Gaucher mutation. Uh, it was called the Gaucher mutation at that time. It subsequently, it was called the GBA mutation. And at that time, I don't think there was any knowledge of the link to Parkinson's. And I just thought that I had dodged a bullet because if I had received uh, an allele from both parents, then I would have probably had Gaucher disease. But since I only had it from one parent, uh, I thought I dodged a bullet. It was only later years, uh, later on, when I was diagnosed with Parkinson's that I discovered that there are genetic mutations that significantly increase your chances uh, of getting Parkinson's, and one of those is uh, the GBA mutation, which ch increases your chances to somewhere between 5x to 10x 
what you might be susceptible to in, in a normal population. So um, it was kind of a, a decision made, in, in, you know, with respect to where we were in our family life, but it came into play and the, the knowledge was helpful later. But if I had it to do over again, I mean, at this point, if I was diagnosed, I would want to get genetically tested just because, you know, I think more information is better. Uh, you know, some people, when they're about to have a kid, don't want to know what gender the kid is. I, I, I would want to know. And in my case, I would want to know as much information as I can about my own body. And I, and I, think, I think it's just helpful in general because um, I'm a numbers guy, and I think that uh, if the more information you have and the more numbers you can crunch, the more data you can collect, and potentially the more therapeutics you can come up with uh, down the road. Thanks, Ofer. Rini, I, I know you have kind of an interesting story, and your journey, I think, was a little little different from Ofer's, and I wonder if you could walk us through that. Sure, um, and thank you very much. And Ofer, it's nice to finally hear your story. I've seen your picture on Michael J. Fox uh, Foundation um, brochures and booklets and everything, and it's nice to meet you and hear your story. Um, yeah, for me, it's a much more recent journey. Um, my father had Parkinson's disease. It was very mild, and um, he had other things going on, so it wasn't the most uh, prevalent thing in our lives, and I uh, kind of forgot about it. And then I um, had started working in hospice, became a medical social worker, went back to school late. Um, graduated in 2017 and um, started working as a um, hospice social worker in uh, January of 2018. And one of my first patients had um, end-stage Parkinson's. And uh, most people don't get to that stage necessarily, but there she was. And um, I was looking for a way to help her be more comfortable, talk to her sister about the possibility of aromatherapy, and her sister said, well, that won't work because she lost her sense of smell a long time ago, and I thought, well, hmm, I lost my smell, sense of smell about five years ago, hmm, and then I was remembering, well, let's see, my father had Parkinson's disease, and started looking up some of the um, early symptoms and counted off about five of them that I had myself. And so uh, February 23 and me was running a um, really sweet Valentine's Day special on their ancestry and health spit kits. And so I suggested to my husband, hey, let's go do this. And so we did and got the results in April because mine had to be redone for some reason. And um, there I was with the LARC2 mutation. But in the meantime, I had been doing a lot of other research, and I saw that there was a mountain of uh, risk factors that um, with the LARC2, if you're Ashkenazi Jewish, um, it raises the um, risk factor up to um, 25%, and then um, a little corner of my paternal ancestry is North African Berber, and that raises it up to 41%. And then other risk factors such as living on a farm, drinking well water, um, being near chemicals, 
da 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 and I thought, okay, <laughs> I have Parkinson's, early Parkinson's going on, and I kind of diagnosed myself before I went to a movement disorder specialist, and that's how it happened, and I was so glad to know. Thanks so much. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, different story from Ofer's, but uh, uh, certainly very compelling, and, and the fact that you took such charge, I think, of your sort of own uh, sort of knowledge about about your genetics that uh, really helped you then, I think, understand what was happening. So I think a, a really, again, really powerful message. So I'd love to talk to you uh, both a little bit more, maybe near the end of the call with some of the questions that we're getting about your experience. But uh, let's let's move on and sort of talk a little bit about what I think is some of the exciting advances we're making with this genetic information in actually developing new treatments. Um, so uh, maybe before we sort of dive into where things stand, a couple of little uh, points here. Um, first of all, like what does it mean to, when we understand genetics of Parkinson's, how does that actually lead to our ability to make new therapies? And so again, this, this brings us back to the, the, the first slide where I talked a little bit about what, you know, genes actually do in the body and how, how they are really the instructions for proteins in the cell. And again, when we see those changes in the gene recipe, uh, that can actually alter how the protein works and functions in the cell. And in cases of disease, if that function is impaired or altered in some significant way, it actually can potentially lead to disease. And so uh, when we think about the genetics of Parkinson's, then, you know, as we look at these, you know, various genes that have been linked, you know, some, some of the ones we've already mentioned, LRRK2, GBA, uh, there are mutations in a, in a gene called alpha-synuclein, which, again, is the instructions for making a protein called alpha-synuclein. And by understanding these genetic differences and how they impact those proteins, that's really opened up a whole world of understanding about what goes on in the cells of people with uh, Parkinson's disease uh, and how that ultimately leads to the, the changes that happen in their body that, that lead to the symptoms and, and progression of the disease. And so when we think then about making drugs and treatments, what we're really thinking about is how can we target that altered biology that was sort of caused by those genetic changes uh, and, and use that as a way to then try to fix that problem, sort of restore that function of those proteins. Now, there's an important point here. So we talk a lot about sort of the, how the genetic changes can lead to these protein changes that then, you know, lead to disease. But by, by knowing that, knowing that these proteins uh, working in the cells can actually lead to Parkinson's disease when they're genetically changed, um, that puts sort of a, like plants a flag in the ground for our understanding generally of Parkinson's. Because then we could say, okay, well, if that genetic change caused that protein to, 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 to work differently and lead to Parkinson's. Maybe there are other factors that can target that same protein mechanism and also lead to Parkinson's. Maybe it's an environmental toxin that comes in and messes up with that same protein or some other factor that comes in and messes up that same protein machinery. Um, so even though the genetic change is kind of where we might start, ultimately that information we're learning about what's happening in the cell can help us maybe understand Parkinson's disease generally, even in people who don't carry those particular gene, gene changes. And that really is the most powerful, I think, compelling sort of um, um, uh, importance of genetic understanding of Parkinson's is that it really potentially paints the picture of what causes Parkinson's disease for everybody. Uh, and that's how I think why it's so important to think about, um, you know, these genetic um, studies and how they can lead ultimately to treatments that can potentially help everybody with the disease. So let's um, actually look at 
what is happening today. So excitingly, uh, we actually have a large number of clinical trials, so tri uh, studies that are actually being tested in people with Parkinson's uh, that are targeting, uh, that are, that are uh, developing drugs that target the mechanisms we think underlie uh, some of the genetic changes in Parkinson's. And there's sort of three genes in particular that people are sort of most compelled by today. Uh, we've mentioned these again, the LRRK2 gene, again, which makes a protein called LRK2, uh, the GBA gene, uh, and the alpha-synuclein gene. And there are companies that are now making drugs that target the altered mechanisms that we think underlie these genetic differences and, and ultimately how they lead to Parkinson's disease that are in various stages of clinical development. Uh, we talk about the different stages of clinical development. You may hear the words phase one, phase two, uh, and also phase three. Uh, those are just the different stages of, of clinical testing. Phase one is usually sort of early safety testing. Phase two is sort of early efficacy testing, seeing if the drug is actually having a benefit. And then phase three uh, is, you know, sort of the ultimate test where we're actually looking to see uh, if those um, uh, uh, drugs are actually having real benefit in a large number of people. Um, so for these three genes, we actually have a number of trials that are ongoing. Uh, for the LRK2 uh, uh, gene, for example, we have two companies, uh, Denali and Biogen, that are both making uh, drugs that target this mechanism and are testing those in, in, in people with Parkinson's now. Um, uh, we also have a lot of efforts uh, looking at mechanisms targeting GBA with companies like um, Sanofi Genzyme, uh, uh, other companies, Escape Bio, another company called Lysosome Therapeutics that are developing uh, different uh, um, uh, approaches to targeting GBA. Also a company called Prevail Therapeutics that's developing a, a particular sort of a unique gene therapy approach, a way of uh, restoring the GBA uh, 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 protein function in people with, uh, who carry this particular form of Parkinson's disease. And they have an active trial right now called the PROPEL trial that is ongoing and, and uh, is, uh, potentially, uh, has a potentially promising approach for, for targeting this particular genetic mechanism. Uh, we also see a lot of companies who are really targeting alpha-synuclein uh, as a potential um, uh, target for Parkinson's disease. And what's interesting about alpha-synuclein is even though it was originally linked to Parkinson's as a genetic factor, uh, there were mutations in the alpha-synuclein gene linked into a number of families in Parkinson's back in the late 90s. Again, this was the sort of watershed moment that opened the genetic discovery for Parkinson's disease uh, you know, 20 years ago. But what was found very soon after that genetic discovery was that clumps of the alpha-synuclein protein were found in the brains of pretty much everybody with Parkinson's disease. So this really opened up, I think, an important area of investigation to suggest that something about that clumping of that protein alpha-synuclein possibly in some cases induced because of this genetic mutation, but in other people who don't carry that mutation caused by some other factor. Um, that that was sort of an underlying, maybe common feature uh, for pretty much everybody with Parkinson's disease. And so, again, that's why you see so many drugs that are being developed already for, for alpha-synuclein uh, as well. And so, so again, we're super excited, you know, certainly from the perspective of the, of the Michael J. Fox Foundation, because we've, we've supported so much work in trying to understand the biology of these genes and, and helping to sort of move these, therapy for, these therapies forward. And so to see them now in clinical testing and, and people is a, a really powerful and exciting uh, sort of milestone for, for the field. If you're enjoying this podcast, share it with a friend or rate and review it on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. MichaelJFox.org. Thanks for listening. 
Now, back to the podcast. All right, so what's next for genetic research? So obviously we've uncovered a number of genes, we're learning more about the genetics and ultimately the biology of Parkinson's disease, but there's still a lot more to learn. Uh, and I you know, want to touch on a few of these uh, points and maybe go back to, to, to Nacho and, and talk a little bit about one, I think, important part of genetics, uh, which is that a lot of the genetics in Parkinson's done to date has really been just in a subset of the population, sort of particularly in particular European Caucasians. And a lot of the work that we're doing now is making sure that we understand really the genetics in everybody with Parkinson's disease. And I wonder, uh, Nacho, could you talk a little bit more about some of the work that you're doing and really trying to expand uh, our understanding of Parkinson's, you know, really globally and sort of in, in a more diverse uh, group of people with, with Parkinson's? Sure, and yeah, I just want to clarify that uh, unfortunately, it's not a Parkinson's, uh, uh, you know, field problem. It's all over across the, all diseases. Uh, you know, there's been a, a huge underrepresentation of uh, non-European population. So it, it is a big issue not only in Parkinson's disease but in any other diseases. And and the good thing is that we're you know we're working towards changing this, uh, hopefully much faster than other diseases, so we can set the example. Uh, but yeah, I, I think um, you know we already talked about some of the variants that have been identified associated to Parkinson's disease, um, and the truth is that so th these studies that have been done with thousands of thousands of patients, I'm talking about almost uh, 38,000 patients and you know over a million healthy controls. Those studies include only individuals that are highly uh, from a European ancestry background, um, and there there's many reasons why this this has been done this way. Uh, you know, uh, but I, I think ultimately, you know, it's, it's something that we need to fix because uh, not only is, you know, we want to be able to treat everybody, you know, with the best drugs uh, that apply to their ethnic or their genetic makeup, but you know, we also want to understand better the disease, and we we believe that this populations that have not been studied could be the key to identify new genes. And, and as you said, new genes mean new therapies, uh, more understanding of the disease, so we can provide better care and, and more opportunities for, for people to, you know, hopefully uh, be able to uh, one day cure this disease. So, so, uh, so we've been working on, on Latin America. So Latinos are one of the populations that are very, very underrepresented, despite the fact that there's uh, a lot of them in the, in the U.S. is the fastest growing minority. So, you know, there's a lot of them. Uh, uh, in the U.S., and we need to be able to again pro provide uh, equally uh, uh, good healthcare to to them. So, um, so about 2006, we started working in in Latin America to try to uh, get enough samples to be able to do this type of studies, right? Because unfortunately, uh, as we mentioned, some of these genetic variants have very low uh, effects. So that means that you need to have thousands and thousands of people to be able to even see them. Uh, so, so we're trying to gather this, and we've been working on this for about 14 years. We're now to the point um, where, you know, we have enough people to be able to do some of the same uh, uh, experiments, some of the same analysis that have been done in European populations. So we're seeing some really interesting things. Uh, you know, they have the same amount of Parkinson's in, 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 in Latinos in general compared to uh, white Europeans. Uh, however, a lot of the mutations, for example, uh, the LRRK2, the LRRK2 uh, variants, they're quite rare in populations in Latin America that have low European ancestry. Those mutations came from, uh, we think, the Middle East, and uh, they're more common in Europe, North Africa. 
Uh, in Latin America, not as much, um, which we were surprised in. And in GBA, we see that there are mutations that are, or variants that are specific to different populations. In Colombia, there's one that affects about uh, 5% of the, of the uh, patients with Parkinson's disease that only is, uh, we've only seen it in Colombia. So it's a very uh, population-specific variant. So all, all this information really helps us to, again, provide better care and understand better the, the disease. And we have uh, many families that we're following that don't have any uh, variants in any of the known genes. So I think it's, this is telling us that there are other things that we can find. So this is obviously very important. And uh, the, the good thing is that now, uh, you know, foundations like uh, the Michael J. Fox Foundation and also the NIH are very invested on, on trying to develop this. They understand the importance of studying other populations. So now we have some funding. So uh, because of this uh, funding, uh, you know, we in Latin America, but also people in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in India, so populations that are very, very big in the world that have not been studied are now being recruited into some of these genetic studies, again, to try to understand uh, if there are differences with uh, other populations and if there are new genes that we can identify and then we can use for, again, potential uh, therapies. So I, I think this work is very uh, important and, uh, you know, I participate in many global um, uh, uh, approaches to, to be able to do this and I think the, the aligning science uh, uh, across Parkinson's uh, you know, it's, it's providing the, the resources that we need to be able to, to do this, uh, you know, with funding to capture. Our goal is to, uh, you know, study about 150,000 new individuals that have not been studied previously. And we want about a third of those to be for under, from underrepresented populations. So we really want to capture uh, uh, people that, again, have not been represented in genetic studies before so we can uh, determine, you know, what the causes are, what the risk factors. And this will also allow us to understand uh, better, I think, the environmental factors because, you know, different cultures have different lifestyles and they do things differently. So that means that we can uh, learn a lot from studying uh, these populations. Thanks, Nacho. And uh, at the foundation, one of one of my hats I get to wear is I, I lead a number of the uh, of the funded genetic uh, efforts that we do, and uh, it's been always so uh, fascinating to me. And, and as a scientist, for sure, but also very you know um, uh, sort of uh, thrilling to be able to work with so many really smart people out there doing such such great work on the genetics of Parkinson's. Um, so so obviously, by you know, we continue to need to understand more genetics of Parkinson's. We certainly have you know, made a good good start, but there's a lot more we can learn and, and really be able for us to be able to do that, to really be able to understand fully the genetics of Parkinson's. We, we, we need people to be able to sort of raise their hand and, and get involved in research studies and, 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 and efforts to link to Parkinson's genetics. And, uh, you know, I'd love to have maybe Rini and, and Ofer kind of step in again and talk a little bit more about the ways they've gotten involved in research specifically and some of the, maybe some of the studies that they've participated in, if they're willing to, to, to talk more about that. Uh, Reading, maybe talk a little bit more about some of the research participation you've been a part of. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite topics. Um, so I, um, as my picture shows, like to, uh, my coping mechanism, I guess, is to fight back against Parkinson's disease to try to um, help uh, prevent it, cure it, uh, treat it. Um, in ways that have never happened before. And the research that's going on, that is the whole goal. And 
having the mutation and seeing that it was very sought after in research studies, I thought, okay, this is something I can do to fight back. And so I started um, that summer that I found out about the variant, I started scouring for research studies that I could participate in. And the first one um, was the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, which is a multifaceted uh, global effort to track the progression um, over a period of years. And so every six months I go to Cleveland Clinic and uh, one day want to meet Nacho there um, and um, offer uh, basically just um, various kinds of testing and um, blood and optional spinal fluid and um, let them use it for their purposes and it's every six months. Um, I'm participating in only observational studies, uh, nothing that involves any kind of medication or treatment, um, but just observational, but about 15 um, and I've gone to New York City and other places to be able to participate because it's something I can do to fight the disease and I'm making a lot of new friends. <laughs> Thanks so much. Uh, Ofer, I know you've, you've participated in research too, including I think some, some treatment trials, and I wonder if you would be willing to talk a little bit more about, about some of the, of the ways you've gotten involved. Sure. Um, when I was first diagnosed, I went on, on the website at Fox Foundation and looked at Fox Trial Finder looking to see if there was a clinical trial I could become involved with. But when I realized I had a mutation, I wanted to go on a trial that was specific to that mutation, which I thought might have more of a chance of being effective in my case. And just around that time, um, Genzyme Sanofi came up with the first clinical trial related to a specific mutation to GBA. So I've been participating um, in that trial now for a couple of years, and uh, you know, we'll see how it works out. But I've also been trying to encourage uh, anybody who has Parkinson's to get genetically tested because, as I was saying earlier, I think the data is, is very helpful. The more data we have, the better. Um, you know, if you have a thousand people who have the GBA mutation and a hundred of them develop Parkinson's, then you do an analysis and you find out that the hundred only got five hours of sleep every day and the 900 always ate an avocado every morning, that would be very simple and easy to say, okay, you should eat an avocado and get a lot of sleep. But it isn't that clear. But if you get enough people who have the mutation and some of them have the disease and you can analyze the differences between the people who have the mutation and don't get the disease, maybe you can come up with an understanding of what a resilience gene or a protective gene might be. So it's not only important from my perspective to have Parkinson's patients get genetically tested, but also to have their close relatives get tested because chances are some of those close relatives have the same mutation but don't have the disease. If you can identify what resilience genes or protective genes the relatives have, those could be good therapeutic targets down the road. Thanks, Ofer. Rini, was that you? Um, yes. I just wanted to jump in and add one thing that um, a lot of times um, we forget to mention, I think all of us, um, and that is the need for healthy controls to participate as well. And one of the, because um, I focus, um, like uh, Ofer, I focus on um, studies that need the mutation that I have, but also people who don't have anything 
um, geared towards Parkinson's. Um, so I volunteered my, uh, or volunteered my husband that he needed to participate also. And so as a healthy control, um, we need family members who maybe aren't connected or friends and to also participate as well. So I just wanted to toss that in. <laughs> no, super, super important. I agree. And, uh, you know, for many of those, uh, many of us who don't have Parkinson's uh, ourselves, but have you know friends or family who are impacted by the disease? It's it's, it's a very powerful and, and an easy way to to get involved is is to get involved as a control uh, participant in some of these studies. And uh, there are lots of ways to do that. Um, uh, again, we have on Fox Insight a, a large uh, a online study where uh, we also can as controls participate in information to to that study. So 100% agree. And, and and thanks for for calling that out. Um, so we're going to move on to some questions from, from everybody. And so, as I said, I've been kind of monitoring the, the question feed. So I'm going to, uh, try to, to try to answer as many as I can. I may um, group some questions together that are sort of touching on, on similar topics. And, uh, and one sort of set of questions, and I see a number of people asking essentially the same question in different ways. Uh, and this one's I'm going to send to you, Nacho. A lot of questions just to kind of about different family patterns, I guess, is what was the way I would call it, of Parkinson's disease. Uh, you know, both parents have the disease. What does this mean for my risk? Uh, does it skip generations? You know, uh, uncle had it, things like that. And I, I thought what maybe, could you talk a little bit more about when you look at a family where there's Parkinson's disease, what, what, as a geneticist, what are you looking for? What sort of, what do you, when you see something, what, what does that tell you? Uh, and how do you sort of go approach that in thinking about um, looking for then a, a potential gene that might be linked to Parkinson's? Yeah, so so that's a very good question, and actually because you know we 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 wanted to keep it short and not very complicated, I didn't really get into the details. But but yeah, those, these genes that we were talking about, you know, some of them are inherited in a different pattern. So for some of them, you know, having only one variant, either inherited from the mother or from the um, from the father. Uh, it's enough to either increase the risk in the case of GBA, for example, or cause the disease uh, in the case of sinuclein, for example. Uh, but others, you actually need to inherit two. So it has to come one from the mom and one from the dad. Uh, and, you know, the first type is called uh, uh, dominant, and then the second type is called recessive. Uh, so, so when we looked at a family, we always try to consider both options, right? So sometimes you'll see, for example, that both parents are healthy, but then they have a, a kid that might have a Parkinson's disease. Those usually are uh, recessive, uh, and uh, usually the, the kid will have the disease early with an early onset. These recessive genes, most of them cause a, uh early onset Parkinson's disease. So the younger it is, Usually, the the more we think about this recessive or these forms, where you have to get two different variants. Uh, so yeah, when we looked at a family, we always try to look that uh, you know first, second degree relatives that are affected in the family. Um, obviously, the more number of people affected in the family, usually will will be raise the suspicion of being a genetic uh, cause. But you always have to remember that. You know, families also share environments. So, for example, if you have a family that lives in a in a farm, they're all uh, exposed to pesticides. So, just because there's a family history doesn't mean that you know it's always uh, genetic. But it also raises a, a flag, right? And we always want to uh, study those those families. But I, yeah, I think it's very important to to remember that 
the, these variants are inherited uh, in very different ways, and it has different effects. So, um, so it, it's it's very it's, it's complicated. That's why we have to go to school for so long <laughs> to try to understand all these <laughs> mechanisms and all this biology behind it, right? But um, but yeah, in, in a simple way, again, we look for for what we call family aggregation. So many different people in different generations that are affected with the disease, with you know similar symptoms, similar age of onset. That always you know raise the flag that they could be genetic. But we can not forget that there are other causes like the environment that could have a, a huge impact as well. So that's actually a really uh, important point too, and and, and kind of goes back to I think a, a conversation we started earlier in the in the presentation today about this idea that there are other factors that obviously can influence sort of you know if and and when and whether a you know a, a gene change might actually lead to Parkinson's or in some cases and this is one of the questions that popped up in the feed as well you know just how that Parkinson's disease actually looks. Um, uh, in response to a particular gene change, and the fact that even people who carry might carry the same genetic change don't always have the same sort of flavor of Parkinson's disease, and 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 I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this idea of sort of modifying factors, the other kinds of factors that again could influence if and how a, a, a Parkinson's gene change might 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 actually show show up and sort of show itself right. in, in, in an individual. Yeah, so, so that's something, for example, that, you know, in the early stages of genetic studies, it kind of blew, blew our minds off because, you know, when you see a family, you always expect the family to be very similar since if it's genetic, you think, well, they all have the same variant, so they'll probably suffer a very similar disease. And uh, not, not only in the, in the symptoms, but sometimes even in their brains, the brains in the, in the LRK2, in the LRK2, uh, in some of their families were very different. They have different things. Some of the, most of them have synuclein, but some of them have all the proteins that aggregate. And you know, as a researcher, that kind of blows your mind. And it, it, I think it really brought up right from the get-go that there were other things in there that would definitely play play a role, not only in the risk, but also in how developed the disease. And for example, uh, you know, we know that different genetic forms of the disease have different uh, uh, prognoses. They have different ways that the disease will present, different symptoms that are more common in one versus another. And I think offer uh, uh, raise a very good point, which is that we need, you know, a lot of individuals from all these different categories, from this all these different uh, you know, genetic forms of the disease to be able to see some of this and understand uh, how that happens. But yeah, I think with the LER2, I think it's a very good example because, um, you know, I, I think I mentioned before that there were people, you know, there are people in their 80s or 90s that have a mutation that in most people will cause the disease. And these people are completely healthy. I had like no one single symptom of, of Parkinson's disease with the same genetic variant. Uh, so there's obviously other genes that play a role, I think. Uh, and and I, I'm certain that there's also uh, environmental factors, most of them w that we don't really understand yet. Uh, and again, I think including these carriers uh, both affected and non-affected from some of these genes uh, will help us determine what do they do different. It, could it be just exercise or could it be in the diet, uh, you know, or is it something more fundamental in the biology of these individuals, so more more of a genetic component that is, you know, modifying this effect of, of the same single variant, because at the end of the day, it's the same single variant. And actually in Alzheimer's, they've shown that the genetic Composition, so the ethnicity of the person for the same variant 
could actually modify. So that, that's telling us that there are other genes uh, around the same variant that uh, could be playing a, a big role. And they, they've seen that with ApoE4, which is a risk factor for Alzheimer's, that if you have that variant in, a, in an African uh, ancestry, so somebody that is from Af African uh, origin, uh, you know, the risk for the same variant is actually lower than if you have it in a European background. So, so again, there, there are different factors. A lot of them could be genetic that we don't really understand. And I have the feeling that for for synuclein, it might be the same. And I don't I don't want to blow out our results yet, but some of the studies that we're doing in Latin America suggest that it could be true for Parkinson's as well. So uh, I think we need to do more studies. And I, I think, yeah, getting people tested and getting people uh, uh, classified in the right type of Parkinson's, either GBA or LER2 or synuclein, will really allow us to do this more uh, stratified or, or, or grouped analysis that will understand and you know, help us understand what all these factors are. And, uh, and I think uh, also getting controls and both carries and non-carries are also very important, obviously, to, to be able to, um, you know, answer this question. Yeah, no, uh, thanks thanks for that and uh, really important. I know some of the, the studies I've been fortunate to be able to fund through the, the Michael J. Fox Foundation have included some efforts to look at, and particularly for the LRK2 gene, some of the types of modifying factors, genetic and otherwise, um, that could potentially be influencing, uh, you know, whether someone who carries that mutation ultimately gets Parkinson's or not. And it's it's complex for sure. You know, there's a lot of information we still don't know. And a lot of it comes down to what you said. We just need more. We need more samples from more people to really, I think, tease these uh, questions apart. But, but clearly we think there's something else involved. It's not just a simple single gene leads to Parkinson's and and that's you know that's the story. There's there's a lot more to the story as well. And maybe I'm gonna I'm use this maybe as a, a launching off point because I'm gonna love to go back to, to Ofer and Rini. And when you think about modifying factors, you know, you know obviously there are the things that you know we hope that drug companies will be able to do, new treatments they'll be able to develop to offer people you know who who carry these genetic forms of Parkinson's and ultimately everybody with Parkinson's. But there are things that we can do ourselves as individuals, and you know, we don't necessarily need our doctors to tell us this, you know, eating better, getting more exercise, things like that. And I wondered if, if the two of you could talk a little bit about some of the, you know, when you found out your sort of gene status, you know, was there anything that that, you know, caused you to think about doing differently in your lives that, that maybe helped influence a little bit about uh, sort of how you live your life today? And, you know, uh, Rini, maybe I'll start with you. Okay, thank you. Um, yes, uh, in doing all of that research, I learned that um, there had been studies that showed that intense exercise regularly, um, uh, almost daily basis, if not daily, um, actually has been shown to slow the progression. And so I um, was already doing aquacide and intensified that. Um, also, recent, more recent research is being done on inflammation and um, LARC2 specifically, and I had been um, increasing anti-inflammatory nutrition because of um, osteo, uh, trying to fight osteoporosis, which I've successfully reversed that and don't have it anymore just through diet and exercise. But in the meantime, some of my symptoms, Parkinson's symptoms started to subside in the last six months as I intensified the exercise and the anti-inflammatory nutrition. I didn't know about it scientifically, so I don't know which has more of an effect, 
but it's working. And I have maybe 50% of my sense of smell back and some of my arm swing. And so I'm thinking, okay, I'm going in the right direction and rock steady blocking. Yeah, it's, it all is a part of it. It's important to, um, to be in control and not expect your doctor or a pill to fix things, but to take charge of your own health. So that's what I've been doing, and it's working. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks much for that. Oper, anything you've been doing that, you know, sort of uh, altered you know, the way you sort of live your life uh, after learning your status? Well, Rini, I need to talk to you separately. If there's something that regains 50% of your smell, that's fantastic. Um, in my case, I mean, I think that we all know what we should be doing in general. Eat well, sleep well, exercise, keep your stress low. Uh, but this really just kind of drove home for me that I need to focus on that even more than I've had before, and particularly actually in the variety. So I try to, I try to confuse my body and do something different every day. So whether it's strength training or cardio, dancing, boxing, swimming, um, I just uh, try to kind of keep things different and, and, and test every part of my body. That's really what I try to focus on. Um, and, uh, you know, and if nothing else, it just, you know, is good for you in general, even if it doesn't necessarily slow the progression. But I like to think that it does, and there have been many studies that show that it does. The other thing for me is, and this is, I guess, more of a psychological part of it, is it, it's kind of motivated me to live more in the present uh, instead of thinking or wondering, you know, where I'll be in 10 years or 15 years, I really try to focus on where I am now and enjoying it and uh, enjoying my friends and my family. Thanks so much, Ofer. So we are coming to the end of our hour. Um, so I'm going to uh, sort of stop the Q&A now. Um, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, thank you, everyone, for being, you know, part of our community and for joining us today. And, and a big thanks to our panelists for for, uh, for sharing all their information and, and insight today. Um, so we'll be sending a link after this call, we'll be sending a link to the webinar so you can watch it on demand if you'd like to kind of rewatch it and re-listen and, and if you missed a few parts and wanna, wanna listen to it again. Uh, I know there were a few questions in the, in the feed about uh, the role of environmental factors uh, and, and, and Parkinson's disease. We actually have some, some prior webinars that have touched on that topic so you can find those uh, in our on-demand um, uh, list as well. Um, please do mark your calendar for our next third Thursday webinar, which will be on October 15th. Uh, and we're, I'm excited to say our, um, our favorite moderator, Dave Iverson, will actually be making a special appearance uh, to bring us an important episode going into the election uh, that's coming up in November. Um, we'll be discussing Parkinson's policy priorities and the power of the government in making decisions that impact people with Parkinson's and their loved ones. And so we, we really hope you'll be able to uh, tune into that, to that webinar. So with that, uh, we're going to uh, end the call. And again, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks for listening. Community members like you are bringing us closer than ever to a world without Parkinson's disease. Learn how you can support the Michael J. Fox Foundation in its mission at michaeljfox.org. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.